Hey, Misfits, it's Pastor Brian. This week, we continue our first ever Advent series. It's more than a countdown. It's a spiritual journey of expectant waiting. This week, we look at the history of hope found in the pages of the Bible. From the creation to Abraham, from the Exodus to David and the prophets, join us as we put together the puzzle of hope that point us to the birth of Christ Jesus. Uh, as uh, we've been talking about, we're in our season of Advent as a church. This is our first time doing an Advent series. It's usually the liturgical churches, the Episcopalians, the Catholics, and so forth that will do the Advent season. We haven't done that in the past, but we thought this year, maybe we should. Maybe we should take time to pause and to reflect on love, on hope, on joy, and peace. We're going to dedicate this season of Advent to expectant waiting of Jesus. That's what Advent is. And so we're expectantly waiting for Jesus to come in his second return, and we're looking back when Jesus came as a baby the first time he came to this planet. And it's not just waiting. I use that word expectant, expectant waiting. Someone described it like this. It says it's like waiting for a sunrise after a long, dark night. You're expectantly waiting. Our family loves puzzles, and so it's one of the things they like to do on the holiday breaks. I don't love them so much, but my family loves them. And so I wanted to get my family a puzzle for Christmas. Now, here's a piece of that puzzle. Anybody tell me what that's a puzzle of, looking at that piece there? Did you say a dog? Ooh, wow, impressive. Anybody else? Tanya, what'd you say? Cow, you guys are pretty good. You're not too far off. Um, the, what I got my family was 101 uh, pooping puppies uh, calendar or puzzle. <laughs> now, this gift was supposed to be a surprise for them all to unwrap on Christmas morning and for them to put together over the Christmas break. But unfortunately, um, when I went on Amazon to buy it, Kennedy's card was the default credit card. <laughs> And so she texts the family group text that we have. It's called the Wordle text because we all share our Wordles back and forth every morning. She texted the group chat, who used my credit card to buy puzzles of dogs pooping? (laughs) Which then kind of spoiled the surprise for my gift to the family on Christmas morning. I say all that to say, as I thought about the text this week, the Bible is a lot like a puzzle. If we get just one little small piece of the puzzle... Well, it doesn't really tell the story. It doesn't really give us the whole picture. It doesn't really tell us much at all. You need all the different little pieces of the puzzle to see the full story or the full picture. And so often we come into Christmas, we come into this time of year, we got this little piece of the puzzle. Or maybe we got a bunch of little pieces of the puzzle, the red and green or whatever. And, and it's an important patch of the puzzle that we put together this time of year But we miss how all the pieces of the Christmas puzzle fit together with the bigger story and the bigger puzzle. Or sometimes we go through life and we get that really difficult piece of the puzzle, you know, the one that you try to to cram in. You're like, I'm going to make this fit into my puzzle here. But if the final picture of the puzzle doesn't look like Jesus and doesn't look like love and grace, we've put the puzzle of the Bible together wrong. And so it's always been my goal as the pastor of this church to help put the puzzle together of God's big story. And that's not easy because there are lots of tiny little pieces to that puzzle. And we try as we might to make those pieces fit our agenda. If we don't put it together correctly and it doesn't point us to Jesus, then we've put the puzzle together incorrectly. And so this time of year, most churches, even us, typically will say, whew, thank goodness it's Christmas We can take a break from those Old Testament pieces of the puzzle for a while. 
I mean, the Christmas story is in Luke and Matthew, right? So let's, let's put the rest of the puzzle to rest for a while. Honestly, why did we ever even bother with the Old Testament? It's old, right? We've got the new. Why would we go and look at the old? It's because both puzzles and both testaments are testaments. They're just that. They're testaments to Jesus. Here's what Jesus says about it himself in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. What scriptures was Jesus talking about? Was he talking about Matthew and Luke? Was Jesus talking about Galatians? No, they didn't exist. There was no Old Testament. There was no New Testament. There was one set of scriptures, one testament of Jesus, what we call the Old Testament. And so traditionally, Advent kicks off with hope, as Nicole mentioned last week. We took an alternative route because that's who we are as a church, and we kicked things off last week with love. Why? Does anybody remember? Because without love, there is no hope. Without love, there is no peace. And without love, there is no joy. And so having covered love last week, now we can turn our attention to hope. It's a powerful word, right? If you Google it, there's dozens of TED Talks about the importance, not secular, importance of having hope. There's health benefits and psychological benefits. There are benefits in general to having hope. I was talking to Karen about that, my wife, earlier this week, and then we kind of reflected on it. We said, you know, throughout our lives, there's always been something that together we have hoped for. We grew up in a really small town, and so we hoped to get out of that small town that we grew up in, and then we hoped to go to college, and then we hoped to get marriage, married, and then we hoped to buy that first home, and we did, and then we hoped to have kids, and then we hope for those kids to leave so we could turn their rooms into listening rooms. We want a little music room to listen. Get to college already. Come on. <laughs> the Christmas story must have love, for sure. Otherwise, it's just sentimentalism. But it also must have hope. Otherwise, it's just nostalgia. And so for me, there's no better place to find hope in the puzzle of the Old Testament than to begin right there at the beginning. And so Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, this is where we begin tonight. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so right there, our story begins with a foundation of hope. If God can create something out of nothing, whoa, then what else can he do? It's the foundation of hope. Verse 3 in Genesis said, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Now, most of us know this story, and so the story continues. God makes the land and the sea and the plants and the animals, and he says, it's all good, it's all good, it's all good. But something, or rather someone, was missing. Verse 26, it says, then God said, let us, who's us? It's the triune God. It's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make human beings in our image. And so God created human beings in his image. God saves the best for last. People to share in his eternal joy. We would be his children and the earth would be our home. And it says, then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. And so a question arose this week as I processed that. 
in a perfect paradise, Eden, where all needs and desires are met, where there's no more suffering, no pain, no want, does our notion of hope, yearning for a better future, exist? If things are perfect, then what do you hope for? Well, I would hope for that perfection to continue. If I were perfect, would I still not hope to grow and to learn and to explore and to experience new dimensions of that perfection? I know if I were perfect, I'd want to continue to deepen my relationship with my wife. I'd want to continue to deepen my relationship with God and see his goodness more. And so in Advent, we hope, knowing that the king has already come and restored everything that was broken, but we still expectantly wait for the day when things will be renewed and restored. But why did things need to be restored in the first place? We turn to Genesis 3 for that. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And so now in the story, we're introduced to the enemy, God's enemy, our enemy. We learn about him throughout the pages of the Bible. We learn that he is proud and arrogant and evil, and he wants what God has. And so the serpent comes into the story, and he begins to plant seeds of doubt, which nurtured into a tree of hopelessness. That doubt, does God really love me? Can I really trust God? What am I missing out on by obeying his commands? And it says in verse 6, the woman was convinced by the snake. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband. It says, at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame. So for the first time, these two people who have been living in perfect harmony with God and with nature and with each other, it says they felt shame. And so it goes on. God says, sin has now entered my world. Darkness has now entered my world. And as a holy God, that means I can no longer be in your presence nor you in mine. And so now you must leave the light of my glory and step out into the darkness beyond these walls. Our story isn't off to a very good start yet. But before God's children leave Eden, we're given a glimmer of hope. It says this in verse 15, God speaks to the snake. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will only strike his heel. And so if you didn't catch it there, God is saying this situation that you're in, it does seem bleak, but I have a plan. I always have a plan. One day I will do battle with the snake, and the snake doesn't stand a chance. And to further our hope, we're introduced to a concept of grace. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God sacrifices something that he loves, this beautiful creature, to cover the shame of his children. Not because they've earned it, not because they've deserved it, actually just the opposite. And so he does this simply because he loves them. That's why we had to start with love. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, many years pass after this. Humanity forgets about God. 
They do all kinds of evil, we're told. They do wars and murder and there's rape. It's a bad place. But while humanity seems to have given up hope, God has not. And so we're introduced in the story to this special family that begins with a man named Abraham. Genesis 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's a beautiful promise. There's a problem. Genesis 17 says, Abraham laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100? And how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? Abraham's like, how could a great nation come from me? We couldn't conceive a child when it was biologically possible. Now we are old. This is impossible. God responds. In verse 14, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Then we learn in verse 21, it says, The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, she gave birth to a son, and they named their son Isaac. Now, in the scope of Christmas, that should begin starting to sound a little bit familiar. A baby promised to a girl who biologically shouldn't have been able to conceive that child because she was a virgin who gives birth to a son that brings new hope not just to a family, but to humanity. Of course, the comparisons don't end there in this story. God eventually asked Abraham to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice this firstborn son as an offering. And yet, in what seems like another hopeless situation, at just the right moment, an angel would appear, announcing good news of great joy, a substitute, a sacrificial lamb. But we're getting ahead of ourselves in the story, so let's continue. Generations come and go. The distant relatives of this special family find themselves in yet again another hopeless, desperate situation. They are now captives. They are slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so the people, they cry out to God, and it says God hears their cries. But because of that gap between God and man created by sin, the people could not speak directly to God. And so God spoke to them through special men and women he called prophets. The first such prophet that we are introduced to is Moses. And so God speaks to Moses. He says, go to Pharaoh with a message. And that message is, let my people go. So Moses goes and he does this and the Pharaoh laughs. But God is about to show him who's really on the throne. And so God turns the Nile River into blood. Pharaoh's response, denial, because it ain't just a river in Egypt. Nicole's a much better comedian than I am. (laughs) God sends frogs, and he sends gnats, and he sends painful boils. And each time, Pharaoh's like, I give, I give, white flag, I surrender. And each time, Pharaoh goes back on his word. And so the last plague would be the worst, the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. But the people have heard a story like this before. And so they begin to think back to Isaac. Is there hope that God once again would provide a substitute? Exodus 12, we're told, go pick out a lamb for each of your families and slaughter the animal. Drain the blood into a basin, then take a hyssop branch and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the tops and sides of the door frames. For the Lord will pass through the land and strike down the Egyptians. 
But when he sees the blood on the tops and sides of your doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit the angel of death to enter your house. God says, death is coming to Egypt, and nothing can stop it. Not even the most powerful military ever assembled. But if you put your hope in the blood of an innocent lamb, God will see the blood and know that the lamb died so you don't have to. And so the people accept this gift of God's grace, and they're saved. The people eventually escaped Egypt. They began a long journey to the land God promised Abraham. But on this journey, they act like little kids on the way to Grandma's house for Christmas. We're thirsty. We're hungry. She hit me. Stay on your side. Don't look at me. (laughs) So God gives them some rules. We call these commandments, ways that life works best, how to be happy, how to be a community, things like love God, don't steal, don't kill each other. These are good rules, but no matter how hard they tried, they weren't very good at keeping the rules. They even added rules to the rules of the rules, but it didn't help. It seemed hopeless. So they have an idea. You know what we need. You know what will fix this. You know what will solve all of our problems? A king. And so the prophet, who is then Samuel, says, Yeah, guys, but we already have a king. Remember, his name is Yahweh, the God Almighty. And the people say, No, prophet, we want a real king. A king like the other nations have. A king who is mighty and strong. A king who wears a crown. A king who knows how to use a sword. And so in 1 Samuel 8, we learn God speaks to Samuel. He says, they don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. So do as they ask, but warn them about the way a king will reign over them. See, God knows you you think this king, this substitute will bring you hope. Let me tell you what a king will do. He'll take and he'll take and he'll take some more. He'll take your children and your servants and your flocks, and the best part of all, guess what? You get to be slaves in captivity all over again. Now, people are like, eh, God, I don't know. Pipe down. This is going to work. We got it. We got it. And so God gives them a king. The first king's name is Saul. And he seems like a good enough guy, but he came proud, and he stopped listening to God. Made a lot of PLCs. Anybody know what PLCs are? We, that's what we say in our poor life choices. That's what we say. Or Presley Lynn Culbertson. That's what we say <laughs> in our family. And so God tells Samuel to go to this old little town called Bethlehem. And he says, there you will find a new king, a good king, a king after my own heart. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he visits with a man named Jesse who has seven sons. And so Jesse brings out all seven sons. He brings out the oldest, and he brings out the tallest, and he brings out the small, or I'm sorry, the strongest. And Samuel's like, no, no, no. You got any more sons back there? And Jesse just kind of laughs. He says, well, there's one more. His name is David. Man, he's just, he's small, and he's meek. More of a shepherd than a warrior. And God says, that's the king I choose. And so David grows up. He fought battles with giants. He led his people like a shepherd, gently guiding them. 
He wrote songs. Psalm 23, David writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David says, Even though I will go through situations that seem hopeless, because you are with me, I always have hope. David was a good king. He unified God's people, but he wasn't perfect. He was still subject to the darkness of sin, made a lot of mistakes and messes more than once. Eventually, as the story goes, David's kingdom that he unified becomes divided yet again. There are civil wars. The people once again turn from God. They still can't keep the law. There's division amongst the people, and once again, they find themselves back in captivity. Well, here's the story so far. God is good. The people don't trust God's goodness. And so they run, they rebel, they think it's better to do it their way. They find themselves in desperate situations, in captivity. They cry out to God. God rescues them. Wash, rinse, repeat. The cycle continues. And so as readers of this story, we're supposed to be asking, man, is there any hope for these people? Is there any hope for a world that constantly messes things up? Is there any hope for me who contributes to these messes? God continues to send prophets to speak to the people. And these prophets, they speak out against corruption and injustice, and they warn of the consequence of sin, and they call the people to repent and turn back to God. But these prophets also continue to give us little pieces of the puzzle of hope. 700 years before Jesus, there's two prophets who contributed some really nice pieces to the puzzle. The first is Micah. He's a minor prophet, didn't say a lot, but he said this. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Then we get to Isaiah. and He is a prolific prophet. Got lots to say. Here's what he says in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. You know how when you're putting together a puzzle, and you finally snap that one piece into place, and it makes it so much easier to get all the pieces around that piece together? That's what just happened with that word, Emmanuel. God with us. Not God apart from us, not God apathetic towards us, not God against us. God with us. God as one of us. A God who knows we could never climb up to him, and so he is willing to climb down to us. Isaiah 9, he continues to write, he says, For a child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And so the people are intrigued. They're interested. Prophet, tell us more about this king. Will he have a sword? Will he be strong? Will he wear a crown? And Isaiah writes this, he says, There's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. 
He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away, but have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. But it was the Lord's good plan. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Could you imagine hearing that? The people heard it. What did he say? I don't know, but he talks so much. Blah, 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 sin, blah, blah, blah. And the Old Testament ends. Story's over. And the people are just waiting. Waiting for a king, waiting to be delivered, waiting for someone to crush that serpent's head, waiting for that Passover lamb, waiting for the missing piece of the puzzle. And so the people waited, and they waited, and they waited. And as they waited, the hope began to dim. The seeds of doubt were once being planted and growing into that tree of hopelessness. Which brings me to my favorite telling of the Christmas story. And it's not in Matthew or Luke. It's in the Gospel of John. John 1.1 takes us right back to where we started. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things were made through Him. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. From creation to Abraham to Moses and David and through the prophets, even in the darkest of moments, hope was always present. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, that light, that hope, was coming into the world. That song we sang, Jesus is the thrill of hope and why the weary world rejoices. He is the prince of peace, the perfect substitute, the covering of our shame. He is the deliverance from captivity, the shepherd who would walk through us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the king of kings. He is God's good plan. And so now a real Christmas story. Luke 1, the angel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to hope. And you will name hope Jesus. He will be very great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestors, David, and hope will reign forever. The enemy still is around, though, that same serpent from the garden. He's going to throw his old tactics right at Jesus to try to extinguish that hope yet again, once and for all. And so he uses lies and shame and fear and guilt. The enemy would pursue Jesus from the manger to Egypt and to Galilee. He would tempt him in the desert and pursue him to the cross. And there, finally, after 33 years, it looks like the enemy had won. Jesus dies. Darkness once again covers the land. It would seem that finally hope has died. But we all know the story here. We've put the puzzle pieces together. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
And God answered three days later with a resounding no. So this Christmas, I asked, what have you given up on? Where do you need to find hope right now in this season? Maybe you've stopped just even setting any goals or having any dreams because you just, you just can't stand to hope for another thing because of the disappointment. Under our tree at home is a gift. It's a puzzle of dogs pooping. <laughs> it's wrapped. It can't be seen. But everyone knows it's there. My family is in a period of Advent expectantly waiting with full faith that on Christmas morning, it will come time to unwrap the presents and that gift will be there. That's biblical hope. We may not see what God is doing. It may be hidden from our view. It may require us to wait and to wait and to wait, but the gift has already been purchased. God's already spoiled the surprise. We know the gift is right there under the tree. So I'm going to ask the band to come up as we close and read to you Hebrews 6. It says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is strong and a trustworthy anchor for our souls. God has given both his oath and a promise that those who take refuge in him will always have hope. That's why we worship. That's why we do what we're about to do. When we sing this final song, it's not about getting lost in the melody and the beautiful lyrics or stirring up some emotion inside of you. That's not what this song is about. We are singing this song to him. We are bowing down before the King of kings, the giver of hope, and saying, thank you. Thank you for the greatest gift ever. So won't you stand? Let's thank him together tonight as we close. Mm-hmm.